Nice. Okay, we're both in. You want to do that whole check thing over again? Check. It was check. amazing. Check. <laughs> no, check. We're good. Welcome to another episode of Theology on Mission. In the past, we've done an episode called "Getting Off the Train," which is look, uh, which kind of was talking about different ways of uh, evangelicals and progressives are kind of stuck on the modernist train. And we thought that it would be good to do some case studies. And so, before we did uh, a podcast on what is the gospel today, we're going to talk about well, what is the scriptures. Seminary, in partnership with Missio Alliance, this is Theology on Mission, the podcast exploring God and integrating faith and life. Here are your hosts, Jeff Holsclaw and David Fitch. I was in college. And I had this conversation with my dad where, uh, I, you know, I was a young philosophy student who knew everything about everything. And he was talking about the Bible and he was uh, advocating for inerrancy and how if we don't have an inerrant word of God delivered to us by God and ensured in its authority, then all of faith unravels. We can't know anything about Jesus, the doctrines of the church. Uh, can't be substantiated. And so he was trying to make sure that I, as a young, you know, uh, young leader in the church who was, you know, thinking of going into ministry, that I had this doctrine of inerrancy and that I was concerned about it. But being steeped in postmodern philosophy, I said to my, I blurted out to him, I was like, inerrancy doesn't matter. It's all about interpretation. It's all about interpretation. Interpretation some goes background music all the way that. down. Okay, well, bum, bum, bum. Well, the sinister, the brooding music. <laughs> it's all about yeah, interpretation. Well, bum, 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 bum. So, so we want to ask. We want to talk about those two things here in today's podcast: inerrancy and. Interpretation. So let's talk about the first one, the Bible. Is it inerrant or is it fallible? Infallible or fallible? Is scripture this rule book for life or is it just a library of experiences? And a lot of times this question gets boiled down to, well, where does the authority of the Bible come from? Where is the authority of the Bible? Uh, modernity created the situation. Um, and a quick rundown of modernity is foundationalisms it's trying to find kind of the Nobody bedrock the bed yes sure they do. the bedrock uh, certainties of life and so this is the enlightenment and modernity coming out and so conservatives want to say well the bible is that the bible is the bedrock it's certainty and so we have to show and prove that the bible is scientifically right, correct right. but there's the a whole bunch says, of background here you know the probably you know it's just like we 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 went to school especially those of us who are are old like me. I mean, you went to school, you you learned physics, you, you scientific method. This is the way all truth shall come. You learned rationalism. You learned cognitive kind of uh, correspondence theory of truth, and this kind of uh, a radical realism of language. And and this is all modernity culminating somewhere uh, in in the twenties. At the meantime, you got over in Germany a bunch of historical critics who are digging in. And this is actually in the eighteen nineties, and they're they're uh, learning about the development of the Bible that it wasn't all this dictation theory that Jeff's... Are you sure you want to put call your dad, put your dad under the bus like that? 
This is where he's coming from. That's, okay. This is just the patient theory, and and we're unraveling this, and so we have what are called the modernist fundamentalist controversies. The Bible is no longer reliable. It's not historically, factually reliable, verifiable, true, and we have this kind of disruption and this crisis of authority, and that's where the Bible churches came from. That's where this whole new understanding of an inerrancy out of the old Princeton school came from, and they were defend. They were doing something very good. They were defending the authority of the Bible. Yes, defending the authority so of the Bible. So let's just give, uh, let's have a toast to B.B. <laughs> Warfield and Charles Hodge. Really? Yeah, and, okay. and Gracious okay, Mitchell and all those dudes who, cheers. We, we both have fresh yeah, cups of coffee. because they were doing something in the time of upheaval where uh, my grandfather, I'm sure, said, you know what, I need some help here, and they gave it to him. Under the constructs of modernity, that made sense. Right. And so the question is, so the defense of the authority of Scripture isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but you kind of you kind of make a joke that in your ordination uh, interview, you said that you believed in inerrancy, but then what did you say? It's too liberal. It, for why me. is it too liberal? I believe in inerrancy, but it's too liberal. Why well, is yeah, I, I think I told that story in Chronicle Christianity, but my whole point is uh, once you move away from this kind of monolithic understanding of knowledge and epistemology that's kind of consigned to the West, especially the Western European edifice. Once once it's no longer, uh, once modernity starts breaking up after World War II over in France and you got now by 1980s, you got the university saying truth according to who. Now I'm saying, uh, yeah, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture, but it's just too liberal for me. Well, why is it too liberal for you? Well, because it, the question is inerrant according to who? Who gets to call what is an error? And if indeed I am going to submit myself to that idea of inerrancy and that the Bible is an inerrancy, is inerrant according to this view of history, historiography, and science, then I'm always going to be looking over the shoulder to see if they came up with a new problem that I'm going to have to now throw my doubts, uh, have to throw myself into doubt over. So liberalism says we ascend, uh, we uh, give over authority to some other entity other than the Bible, culture, or so forth. To me, that's another version of the liberal move, even the Feuerbachian move, you know, uh, that uh, the Bible, uh, uh, we, are, we are giving its authority to someplace else as the ultimate authority. And so, in seeking, so I think Hauerwas is the one who has this great uh, quote: "If I needed a theory of truth to believe the Bible, uh, why wouldn't I worship that theory of truth?" Or something like that. I, I think that's a record. We made it about six minutes into our podcast, and you already brought up Hauerwas. <laughs> it's probably a record. So. We're uh, naming our new dog Stanley, by the way. <laughs> so I didn't know you were getting a dog. So in in seeking to secure sacred authority, we end up outsourcing to secular science the arbitration of what this authority should be. And so conservatives end up taking like hard science and looking for the facts, and then whenever there's new facts, they got to make sure to assimilate that into the old facts. And liberals kind of take the other route, which is uh, is they they set up experience as kind of the absolute um, for understanding these things. And so on the one side, you get the conservatives who have this rule book mentality of the facts of the Bible to live by. It's definitive. 
And on the other side, you get the liberal progressive approach, which is, well, the li- there's a, scripture is a library of experiences. There are these myths that are kind of true, but they help us to live and to live by love, and it's provisional. And so you get these two dichotomies, but really they're both within this uh, frame. modern frame, or they're on the two uh, rails of the train that we're t- you know, asking people to get off of of kind of outsourcing the authority of scripture according to a certain view of science, right. whether that's for One scientific facts. One is the facts. flip side of the other. And, and so, you know, I, I'm, we use the word liberal kind of uh, with tongue in cheek. I mean, what is a liberal these days? I mean, I'm always saying evangelicals are the biggest liberals in our theological sphere. but They um, just don't know it. Right. Whereas uh, the liberal liberals do know it. Well, the liberals, liberals don't. I don't even know <laughs> okay, go on. the terminology applies anymore. But the point is, um, yeah, there's these two ways of understanding Scripture, and both give into this understanding that uh, so, so if we if if we can't accept the propositional truth, the scientific truth of Scripture, we certainly can relate to it experientially because that's what religious experience is and that's what Christianity is all about the experience of God the Father and so um, those are two sides of the same epistemological frame we understand things primarily either through the mind or through the emotions and experience and we and part of the modern move is to sequester uh, religious understandings, Christian God into private personal experience, and the Bible becomes that great elicitor of experience that we can connect with, a library of experiences. I think Brian McLaren calls it, where we can just tap into all the experiences of God from um, the last uh, fifteen, eighteen hundred years, and uh, we too can enter in and capture that experience for ourselves. And so, uh, by the way, I just want to say that that there's there's ways to appreciate and to agree with both sides we must have an experience of god and we certainly must have some historical factual uh, factuality if, if that's even a word to the way we understand god working in history but do do either one really uh get at what it is that we are submitting to when we say these scriptures are authority for our lives both of them are truncated both of them are too small of an understanding of the way the scripture operates as an authority for our lives. Now, usually we, uh, or at least I, don't like to think of our project as kind of a, a best of both worlds or a middle right. way or something like that. It's more like a radical way that gets that kind of breaks through some of these dichotomies. But on this on this topic, it does seem like we do need uh, both views. And so, on the one hand, scripture is a product of God in some fashion. Um, through the Son and the Spirit, right, Trinitarian and things. Um, Did you say Scripture is from God in some fashion? I, 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 believe, yeah, I fashion. believe we assent that God has been involved in the writing of yeah, Scripture. I, no, the I believe The Holy Spirit that. has been at work I didn't finish my thought. Beginning. I didn't finish my thought okay. here. Okay, so on the one hand, Scripture is a product of God. Um, and so a lot of times for the conservatives that means uh, it's necessarily true, otherwise God would be a liar, you know, and all these different kinds of things. And then on the other side, you get uh, someone like Pete Enns who wants to push for the humanity of scriptures. Humanity is thoroughly embedded in the human history and human cultures and human words. And so uh, a lot of times you follow that out and it's like, well, scripture is not totally true because it's fallible. And it seems like we need to bring those two together better, is that there's a very human nature and there's the, the divine nature of scripture, as well as this, I think, 
think communal nature is that God is speaking to a community um, and working through that. And so can we bring these two views together in some fashion? And of course, you know, there's Christological and pneumatological. This is understandings of Christ and what is the spirit at work in the world. These issues come into play. I would love to spend a whole podcast where I could just lay out my uh, theology of scripture, but I don't think you're going to give me the green light on that one. But we won't do that today. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> told you. Well, well, it was a little long. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? I didn't even get started. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I guess what I would add to this is that, yes, propositions are important for Scripture, but they don't. it does not exhaust what Scripture is and how it plays out its authority in our lives. And, and, and Scripture certainly is the elicitor or the connector or the reporter of experiences with God, but that certainly doesn't uh, exhaust how it functions in our lives. Um, there's a grand story that shapes us into understanding and seeing and, uh, and, and having the capacity to see God at work in the world. And so uh, maybe a better metaphor is the grand story out of which we as communities of, of Christ, the church, are born. And we are reciting that history, that story, and we are learning to extend that story through the submission of our lives to that story. Um, everybody, I don't care who you are listening today, I don't care if you're in Antarctica and you're living on the, on the top, Ooh, of, top awesome. of the South Pole or the bottom of the South Pole or whatever that, however that geospatial reality is reported, but we all have a story that we're living out of, a narrative. This is a Howard Wasing thing, sorry to bring him up again, but it's also the, the narrative theologies of Hans Frey and George Lindbeck and so forth. But the point is, um, whose story do you, uh, what big other, to use another famous philosopher's idea? Oh, you roll your eyes when I say stuff. Okay, what, the big what, other. What, what is the big other? What? Where are you understanding yourself? Out of what story are you understanding yourself? What's your yourself? frame? What's the transcendent story bigger than you out of which you've learned to live your life, understand what you're here for, and understand what your role and place and how to operate. You know, so we all have a story. Even, you know, most of us are still somehow trying to figure out how to live the American story when it's falling apart uh, daily in the markets, etc., etc., and we don't have big bank accounts, etc., etc. But anyways, the point is, that metaphor for Scripture seems to encompass both propositions experience and helps us see that scripture is so much more than this modern epistemologically framed uh, truth textbook or this library of experiences so to transition then into our second segment, so when we or preach, summarize okay when we preach and practice the reading of text together whether it be around the table every every night at dinner or in the morning uh, isolated in our own prayer closets or whether it be on Sunday morning when we read maybe one text or four texts uh, and then when we preach we are not like examining word for word lexical uh, uh, accuracy backgrounds it all helps to explain but we want to know the world we're being called into to live in where Jesus is Lord and how to extend that world into every every facet of our lives and into the rest of the world. Uh, so we want to proclaim the good news and what God is doing and shape the imagination of our people with Scripture and call them and invite them into it, not dissect it, turn it into a little textbook where people can control and use it to their own, to their own ends and purposes. So instead of a doctrine 
of inerrancy, we need more of a practice of interpretation, which leads us into our second question. So part of the postmodern turn, the linguistic turn, or the hermeneutical turn in uh, philosophy and theology, these different things, uh, they, they raise these questions. What? I'm hearing snores out there now. No, it's, <laughs> there's no snores. People love this stuff. So there's no snores. But part of this is... I didn't understand half of what you Part said. of this, uh, this kind of postmodern turn is to be, suspicious, turn. to be suspicious. So we have the hermeneutics of suspicion. We have these ideological readings. What is the linguistic and turn, Richard Rorty? The, the linguistic turn, it's uh, what we talked First about of all, previously. It would be good if we could pronounce it. The linguistic, linguistic turn. Linguistic it's hard to pronounce. Turn. I can pronounce it, just don't ask me to spell it. <laughs> it's the idea that uh, all of reality is shaped by the words that we use and that there's no independent reality outside of the language that then is used to express yeah. it. And so that goes all the way deep down to our perceptions of the world, our emotions of ourselves and of others, as well as the grand theological and, and uh, philosophical themes of God in the world. That is like so that. important. You can in never my step. Opinion. You can never step out of the language that you're using in order to look at the, the language. And the main, to look at the, uh, the main uh, characters in this story, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, uh, Rory. Then you also have Derrida. You have uh, Paul Ricoeur. Yeah. You have, uh, wait, no, we yeah. forgot an important one. Gadamer. Yeah. And by the way, uh, our friend Jamie K. Smith, K. A. Smith, uh, wrote that book. Who's afraid of relativism? Yes. Uh, excellent uh, exposition of people like Rorty and Wittgenstein. One easy book. I highly recommend it. Yes, definitely. So, so the question then is, is well, if we're going to move from a doctrine of inerrancy, not that we want to leave it behind, but we also know that the world is asking, well, what is this practice of interpretation? How do we know that you as pastors and preachers or you who are coming up with these doctrines of the church aren't just stuck within your own cultural matrix and or aren't just abusing your power to kind of keep the world as it is or to do these different types of things. How do we, how do we engage with those types of criticisms? Could you uh, repeat the criticism? And You're stalling. Is, You're stalling. Uh, how I'm still how enamored do, with your explanation of linguistic <laughs> term. How do, uh, when people say, your interpretation of the Bible... Is just your interpretation, and I have my interpretation. Or when they say uh, your interpretation is abusing or suppressing certain groups of people, how do we respond? Yeah, well, um, we respond. I wish I had prepared for this better than this, but uh, I didn't know you were going to ask me this. But um, Thomas Kuhn, K-U-H-N, the uh, history of scientific revolutions. You know, I think he's said the highest ascent is the ascent of a community. Uh, and uh, so the point is, uh, really, uh, uh, we, uh, our interpretation must bear the burden of yielding the fruit of a compelling way of life. And therefore, we will know we're screwed up. We will know our interpretation is off when it starts to um, um, not manifest the fruits of the Spirit. So to that extent, we have to trust the proven interpretive history of a tradition. That's Alistair McIntyre. 
We have, so I, I, I would also, I don't know if you remember this, but back when we used to have preaching meetings, uh, I remember one time Matt Tebby, if you're listening, sorry to throw you under the we bus, Matt you. Tebby, but uh, he would say, I came up with this totally original interpretation that no one ever in the whole wide world has ever come up with. And I go, please. <laughs> Basically what you're saying is you're a heretic and, and you need to get out of here right now before we flail you uh but you know the but as a quick plug we're actually having matt tebby come for the the uh, mission of learning conference he's going to be one of the presenters for the mission of learning conference on the mission of preaching he's He's turned it all around he's He's no longer largely through the guidance of holes (laughs) clause but anyway (laughs) just kidding on all that uh, but, the but the point is, uh, you know, if someone gets up uh, on the pulpit and says, uh, I saw Satan fall like lightning, when Jesus said that in Luke chapter 10, what he was really saying is Jesus just came from Saturn because some historic, brilliant historical backgrounds uh, reveals that whenever the uh, Jews in the uh, first century said lightning, they were referring to Saturn. And therefore, we as a whole congregation should now get up, rise, and point towards Saturn and bow and worship to Saturn. Okay, if someone actually did that on a Sunday morning, he would be cast out of the church for heresy because that interpretation has not proven fruitful and has no history of you know, all of the various things that go into the working out of interpretation over time in the church. So the community becomes the bearer of an interpretation. So does that help at least? That does help. That, that helps on one level to move from the individualism of interpretations where you can just, you know, argue with people to a tradition of interpretation and in a trajectory as well as a community. But how, how do you answer the question of, well, that's great. That's, so now we move from one person But now we have a whole community, and what if that whole community, and again, uh, the question of like slavery comes up, if you have a whole white supremacist racist community that believes that slavery is okay according to the Bible, how do you break into that interpretive framework if if it's just one community versus another community? Well, the same way it happened. Uh, There were evangelicals, frankly, and this is all recorded in Don Dayton's Evangelical Heritage that saw the error of it. There was Wilberforce in Britain slightly before the abolitionist movements in the United States and they rebelled against what I view were the Christians who were too, I was gonna say too fat, too too, (laughs) uh, aligned with power, money, and position, and therefore were blind to the way their own interpretations were misguided and contrary to the gospel. And therefore the people who were on the ground, the Anabaptists, the people who were uh, amongst the poor, the people who were living amongst those who were oppressed by slavery and so forth, rose up to say, no, this is the gospel and we are going to resist and even work against the powers and principalities that have taken scripture and used it for their own ends and purposes. But there's always, so there's always gotta be a reforming element in the church. Mm-hmm. And it's a continual development. And that takes the posture of humility and repentance. Stephen Fowle talks in, uh, he talks about having communities of repentance as communities of interpretation who are not looking for what this text says about other people, but how can this text challenge ourselves? Um, and then also a lot of the liberation theologians and others have talked about, well, the Bible really is a book from people on the margins for people on the margins. And so we need to read it that way instead of figuring out how can people in power stay in power. And so there's a couple different trajectories and um, assumptions that we can bring along to the text as we interpret it to help us not be ideological and oppressive in our reading practices. So we always have, and this is a big emphasis in my work, we always have to be discerning of the power structures at work in the processes of interpretation. 
we always have to be discerning about where the church is speaking from. And uh, we have to come together into mutual submissive, submissive practices. And, and so, frankly, the churches of Christendom have the most problem in this area. The churches of Christendom that view, um, uh, that have positions of authority and power based on hierarchy as opposed to uh, mutual submission uh, and uh, um, uh, polycentric leadership. Mm -hmm. Right, good. Well, uh, I think that wraps it up for today. We just really touched on this issue of Scripture. And if any of you want to hear my doctrine of Scripture, which is fabulous, just go on our Facebook page and like this and, let, and comment and let us know because it's good stuff. Because we do need to rethink this. I remember teaching a class of a lot of Southern Baptist preachers, and they have this doctrine of Scripture, which is all about... Where was this? Here. Oh. It was all about information and inspiration and, uh, you know, inerrancy. But their practice... They were, uh, a lot of them were African-American preachers. Their practice of Scripture is that God's Word is living and dynamic, right? But their doctrine of Scripture didn't fit their practice of Scripture. So how can we have a doctrine of Scripture that understands God's living and dynamic yeah, Word? Yeah, you may be in trouble for throwing Southern Baptists under the bus right now. It's not just Southern Baptists. Southern Baptist. Believe me, it's most of evangelicalism, both of which you and I are. Okay, you're right. Both you're of right. us are part of, and uh, so there's a lot of good Southern Baptists out there. Amen. 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 All right. So we didn't do this last time, but today we are. The fabulous Fitch versus Fitch, where we keep you accountable for the things you say on Facebook. So now this is, you know, I'm sorry, but this is another quote from Harawas. you got to tell us what, what you meant there. Is, quote, you say, We must challenge the assumption that Christians are the same as everyone else, except for that they think that they need to go to church for some reason. Now, why is that important to you? Why do we need Christians to, to think that there's something different? Don't we already have a bunch of fundamentalists? Uh, yeah, okay, so uh, can I see the quote? <laughs> yeah. He's uh, stalling, people, he's stalling. Uh, we must challenge the assumption that Christians are the same as everybody else. It, it, except for they go to church. Except for they add on a little spice to their life by going to church once a week. Now, I think that's pretty self-evident. In other words, I think too often Christians blend in and there's nothing distinctive about ourselves and we just happen to be a little have a little more spiritualness to our life. And 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 so, you know, unfortunately I think we need to uh, I think at this I think there's a distinctiveness about who we are and what has been made possible in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that when we enter a space we bring something something different, assuming that others are not participating in the same reality. And so, I don't know, I think that's pretty, I, I think uh, Hauerwas is getting at the fact that uh, most Christians are just good people uh, trying to do the same good things that everyone else is doing. We just go to church to give us a little boost. And uh, I think that's uh, an inadequate uh, way to live your life as a Christian. In fact, I'd say probably don't even need to go to church. Go to, tune in to... Uh, you know, Oprah or something. Like that. <laughs> Joel Osteen. Is that church? Sorry, Joel. Anyways. I throw my dad under the bus. You uh, throw I Joel throw, Osteen. I throw Oprah under and bus. Osteen under the there bus. There we go. Okay, no okay. problem. All right, good. Well, uh, so I have a little update. Which uh, are it, we going to do the book? Oh, yeah. Thank you. What are you reading? What yeah. you reading? 
Um, I, I don't know if I should. Uh, I don't know if I should bring this up, but uh, "Sublime Object of Ideology" by Slavoj Žižek, you know, uh, published way back in 1989. But there's a section that I reread called "The Chevoir." What do you want? It just basically is stunning, and it's uh, the way it dissects how our identification, how our identity, is formed into relationship to frames. We're, we're always asking the question, "What is the other person?" Uh, see in me and then we move our consciousness into that other person and we're, we're thinking how does that person see us and in and through this is a frame of the big other and I think it's so helpful in understanding that subjectivity is not obvious we're all being shaped by certain factors in how we see ourselves and come to an understanding of ourselves. And I think the gaze of the other is really important. In the, and of course, for Christians... The gaze with a Z there. It sounded like you said gaze. Gaze you, with G-A-Z-E. -E. Yes. Yeah. And, and of course, for us, it's the gaze of God the Father through Jesus the Son mm -hmm. by the Spirit and, and the community of Christians. And that's scary for a lot of people because, frankly, we haven't been very good presenting an alternative in terms of identity formation uh, versus our, our broader society. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't presented too many screens, fantasy screens like Zizek talks about. And I think, so, so that, all that theory about subjectivity and the formation of identity in relation to the big other is found in chapter, uh, the beginning of part two, chapter three, Sublime Object of Ideology. I highly recommend it for those of you who are inclined to read thick ideological texts. Mm -hmm. Well, and for me, just to riff off what you said there, is Zizek, I think, helped me become a better pastor. Because he's always saying, uh, especially in that essay, is that there's, there's two levels of people. One is, and they always come at you on the information level. They want some information out of you. What do you believe about this? Why are you doing that? Uh, and so, but really there's this lower level of their desire. What are they worried about? Are they afraid that you're doing this? Or are they, are they afraid about you know, their kids? And so they're asking you this question. Like there's always these indirect uh, things going on in people that we always have to dig deeper. And, that's, and I think Jesus is the perfect and, and, example of this. Is he's, he, never, he never lets people come at them at him with an information question. And then he gives them the information. He always brings it down a level to what's your desire here? What's your hope? What's your fear? Yeah. What's going on? And shape wise, the French for what do you want? Yeah, what do you want? And, and, and our desires are shaped by our view of the other asking, looking at us, what do you want from me? And that's Zizek or uh, Lacan uh, and, and those theoretical ideas come from those spaces. But I think we have a different way of understanding the formation of desire in Christianity. But it plays on some of the same principles. So it's a great read. It's, a, it's actually a difficult read. <laughs> it's not a great read. It's, it's not very a great hard. read. It's a difficult read. But, but it's helpful. But we it's, should really do a whole podcast on that. What do you want from desire and being pastors? Because I think, I think it's You know what? Important. It's going to take a little work because we have to be really clear. It's hard to be clear about Zizek. So, and, and, you know, neither of us know him as well as we think we do. Well, what I'm reading is not glamorous, but it's what I'm reading is I'm reading this book by Herman Ritterboss. He's an old, older. You gotta be kidding me. German, no, Herman Ritterboss, an older You're German. Dutch. Dutch. Is he Dutch? Yeah, Dutch, Dutch Reformed. Sorry. Dutch Reformed. Uh, but it's pretty compelling. It's called The Redemptive History and the New Testament Scriptures. And he's talking about how how was the New Testament canon gathered and what does that mean? Was it just this community that gathered up these different documents and then, or, or you know, 
put a wow. little oil on them and ordain them? Or was it a part of the redemptive history and work of God? Which really gets into some of the questions we're talking about. It's actually fascinating. Read well, redemptive Ritter history. Well, was one of the first Helschgeschichte theologians, but he came from the Dutch world. Uh, he's good. I think German he has world. all the... So, yeah, it's really cool. So, well, you actually like one of the books? I'm... It's a shocker. All right, well, we're going to go out on that high note. So, uh, last thing is we are one review shy on iTunes from actually being... Um, Rated, and so I'm just pleading desperately. If one of you listening well, just we, go to iTunes and write a review, then we'll have this like a public rating that will say how awesome we are. So well, I know why don't you or I do it. <laughs> well, because then my, I think my name shows up. It's gonna look really oh, bad. Okay, so, yeah, you know, yeah. hey, Jeff Olscott, thanks, well, Jeff well, Olscott. Awesome. You use a fake name. Uh, I don't know how to do that. I'm not very sophisticated. <laughs> so the, one of the best ways, I know a lot of you share our podcast online through Twitter and Facebook and other ways, but a great way to say that you enjoy and support this is to write a review. If you could just go there on the iTunes, that would be fantastic. Jeff Holtzclaw, Dave Fitch signing off from, from the Griffith Conference Room in Northern Baptist Seminary. No, it's just Northern Seminary. We took Northern the, Seminary. We, we took, took the, the Baptist out, out because we're in denial of our community. Oh, no. <laughs> We're out. We're leaving. <laughs> I hope the trustees aren't listening. No, just kidding. We love you. We love everybody. We love Northern. We're deleting all of this.